TED Audio Collective. Hey, everyone. We're hard at work on the new season of TED Climate, but in the meantime, here's something different. This is an episode from Outrage and Optimism, another podcast in the TED Audio Collective. Like our podcast, Outrage and Optimism is focused on solutions and surfacing ideas in the climate space that give us hope and emphasize the power we still have to change things. Here's an episode I thought you'd really enjoy. And if you like it, you can find more Outrage and Optimism wherever you're listening to this. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva! You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. As a listener of the show, you know the climate is changing the way we live our lives in some big ways. I want to tell you about another podcast that can help you get your head around the crisis. It's called Climate One. The show is hosted by Greg Dalton and Ariana Brocious, two journalists who have been covering climate for years. Each week, they get behind the headlines and talk with the experts and activists, politicians and artists who are shaping the way our world responds to climate change. People like Senator Cory Booker and the legendary Jane Fonda. These are really smart, in-depth conversations that cover all aspects of climate change, from cutting-edge solutions like geothermal energy to the ways you can lower your carbon footprint just by considering what's in your closet. New Climate One episodes drop every week. Find them on Fridays, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivett Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. Today we have a fantastic conversation for you with two women, uh, Thelma Young, Lutena Tambour, and Rebecca Solnit, former guest author and former guest on this podcast. And the reason we were so keen to talk to them is because they have just come out with a new website and a project called It's Not Too Late. And as you can imagine, this kind of stubborn and determined optimism gets very high marks from us. And so we thought that it would be very interesting to invite Rebecca back and Thelma, of course, her collaborator, and have a conversation with them about what that is and why they feel this is the right moment. So here they are, and we'll be back afterwards for some more discussion. Thelma and Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us here on Outrage and Optimism. We've had the pleasure of having Rebecca on the podcast before, and now this is double pleasure uh, because Rebecca is now joined by Thelma. So we are delighted to have you both here. And as you know, we have invited you because we are so thrilled with your new project entitled Not Too Late. We already love the title and we love the concept. 
and we will mm. give you some time to explain it. But before we go into that, could could you tell us how did you meet? Why did you meet? Why did you decide to launch this project? Just a little bit of a of a, a fun historical background so that we know what the roots are to not to light. Yeah, I think we both recognize that there's a lot of climate grief that's connected to climate despair. And literally a lot of people believe that it is too late, that, you know, there's nothing we can do. And you and a lot of it comes from lack of information. So we hear people who are not kind of in the movement uh, saying nobody cares, nobody's doing anything, it's too late to do anything. And we think that a lot of the climate, you know, grief, despair, et cetera, comes from lack of information, lack of good information, lack of, uh, you know, uh, some of it's specific to the climate science, climate action, climate solutions. Some of it also is frameworks, the ways that people tend to think about power, change, possibility, the future, uh, et cetera, I think are also impediments to recognizing the possibilities and the urgency of seizing them. So Thelma and I really had a shared vision. It was very funny. We just spent three days together and I was all braced as somebody who mostly works alone to be like all grown up for when we disagreed and we just didn't get there. <laughs> <laughs> How wonderful. So for our listeners, uh, we, we will put, of course, the link to Not Too Late in the show notes so that you can go straight there. But just to give listeners a little background. So if I have understood or if we have understood properly, your project entitled Not Too Late is uh, a website that you have launched with the purpose of being a repository for um, where you can put up all kinds of information to make it easy for someone who says, oh my gosh, I wonder, dot, dot, dot. And your aspiration is to fill in and be a very helpful tool to help people find out quickly and easily about the um, the information that they are looking for. But you're doing it from a certain specific perspective and, and purpose, which is to mitigate the climate grief and the despair that we see out there, from which we assume that what you want to do here is actually to disrupt the current, I would say, almost preponderant narrative that it is too late, that it is too complex, that it is too far away from us, and that it is impossible, um, and that we have basically have to give up. Um, and so I I'm, I'm, would love to hear from the two of you, why do you think it is so important to disrupt narrative? Why are narratives so important? Why? What, what is the power that narratives have certainly on on climate change and our action, but in general, why why do we humans need meaningful narratives? I can start with that one. So much of the crisis now is also a crisis of imagination. If people can't see the world that we can build, it'll be hard for them to then step up and take action and know what to do and where to put their energy and, and where to put their hands. And so a lot of what we want to do is um, not just guide people on how to uh, not 
be overwhelmed by grief, but also help them see the different possibilities, the solutions that are out there, the, the different ways of being. There are so many communities right now who are building solutions and a lot of them are on the front lines. And so if we help showcase, you know, here's what's possible, then people can see it. Um, too often we get trapped in the world of doom and gloom and apocalypse and we have to fight back and show people no like another world is possible um so that's another part of this project and and um you know it's a pretty simple part project and we just hope the website is kind of that bomb that people can turn to and are when they're having those hard days and they can just turn turn to that and get some guidance and reflection on like okay, here's how I move from grief to action. Here's my reminder of the world that we can create. Can you speak to that moving from grief to action, Rebecca? You're so good at that. Why? 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 Why is that a journey, the grief to action? I just want to say beforehand that there's a website. There's also a steady stream of encouraging social media on Twitter and Facebook. There will be a series of talks in the fall. There will be a book in April. And apparently there's going to be a school curriculum because everybody's Yay. asking us for wow. it. So, you <laughs> awesome. know, the, pro the project has had a great reception and it's running away with us. And so, yeah, the journey from grief to engagement. A huge obstacle for people engaging is their belief that they don't have power that and that we have that there's nothing they can do and so many things in our culture and capitalism wants us to just be consumers and of course the whole climate footprint thing is telling us all we've got to do is make virtuous individual choices you know it tells us nothing about how we need system change through collective action you know um uh, you know, and there's so many uh, authorities like us to think we're powerless and all we can do is ask them nicely to give us what we want. But there are other narratives of how popular movements, civil societies, good organizing have changed the world. I think hope for the future comes in part from studying the past, from the historical examples, from rethinking the nature of power and the nature of change. And I've been writing about hope a lot for 19 years since my Hope in the Dark essay launched to address the grief and despair when the Bush administration here in the U.S. started bombing Iraq. And I find that a lot of it also is, particularly with Americans, I suspect, a kind of impatience. If we demand this today and we don't get it tomorrow, then we lost. It ignores the complexity of change and that sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes the consequences are huge, but indirect. Sometimes change happens in unexpectedly. I'm also really struck by how much people really think that change, history, et cetera, proceeds in some kind of simple and predictable way. If we don't look <laughs> powerful today, you know, if we don't win today, we won't that tomorrow, you know, whether it's talking about the climate future or, or the solutions or politics, people thinking that there's this kind of very predictable, foreseeable thing. I ran across this amazing thing yesterday. Uh, Moses Maimonides, who oh, I'm mispronouncing, I assume, the Jewish scholar of the 12th century argued that hope is belief in the plausibility of the possible. 
as opposed to the necessity of the probable. Hmm. It is always probable that mm. Goliath will win, but it's also true that sometimes David wins. And a lot of my work has been collecting examples of David winning over Goliath. You know, and the world is just so damn unpredictable. Both the pandemic and the invasion of Iraq created sudden huge changes in the world order, including around fossil fuel and reminders that things can and do change suddenly. So we not only want to give people good information about the science, the possibilities, the fact that we already have the solutions that a huge number of people are already engaging, but we also want to give them new models of change, power, and possibility from the conventional ones, which I think are inherently defeatist. They're constantly feeding us a kind of defeat that makes us passive, which is very useful for the powers that be. And Mm. so... In some ways, we see this project not quite as a recruiting tool, but a kind of gateway people can step through from Mm. inaction to action. Mm. I mean, congratulations on it. We think it's absolutely wonderful. So we were so thrilled. Christiana sent it around and said, and in full caps, they have nailed it with this one. We absolutely love it. So we hope everybody will find it and follow um, what you're doing. And it couldn't be more important, right? I mean, the research that came out, 50% of young people believe that humanity is doomed in the short to medium term. I mean, this is a generational experiment in anxiety that's having its own impact. I'd like to just take you in a different direction, talk about something that has really been worrying me, which is that as the impacts on climate are manifesting more and more, and as the hour is getting later and later, I'm sensing there's this kind of breathless anxiety amongst the general population who pay attention to this. And amongst people who care about climate, there's this sense that because it's become so urgent, we've now got to double down and go bigger on all the things we've been doing. So that means that, you know, activists are getting more demanding and more angry and people in corporations are talking more about sustainable growth and how you decouple. And this is all good stuff. But I'm sensing that a shared narrative that makes it feel like we're all in this together is in a weird way sort of slipping away from us a bit as everybody doubles down on their bit. And I see a concern that people are spending more time arguing with each other about definitions of net zero and all these other different pieces rather than staying focused on the fact that we can still solve this and working on the real issue. Could could you talk around that a bit? Do you recognize that analysis and how do we sort of capture and move beyond some of that to this place of hope and determination? Yeah, well, there are important conversations that need to be had. You know, we need to talk about, you know, the values. We need to talk about how communities are respected through these processes of change. We need to talk about, you know, which solutions are actually solutions. So there are so many important um, conversations that that need to be had. Uh, we can't just go, you know, full force on everything because that is going to rampage, I think, some populations and some people. Um, so I think we do need to make sure that we are making sure that our solutions are, are grounded in justice. And that's important. And at the same time, we need to recognize that everyone has a role to play. Um, One of Rebecca and I's favorite analogies is with Gulliver's Travels, you have the Lilliputians who kind of each throw a lineup um, and hook down Gulliver the giant. And so um, if it's, you know, everyone taking action everywhere and everyone's kind of throwing throwing up their line, they, they can tie down the giant. 
And so everyone's going to have different roles to play. You know, maybe it's, you know, an activist in London taking action or or maybe it's a community in Fiji who are working to protect their coral reef or, you know, maybe it's a corporation trying to, you know, reduce some of their harmful practices. So everyone does have a role to play. Um other thing I'm also really trying to ground in my own practice, I listened to this um, talk with Tarana Burke and she talked about revolutionary grace and it was so beautiful to hear. And I think um, as activists, we often forget that aspect of, of holding grace that, you know, everyone's trying, everyone's doing their best. And, and sometimes we just have to hold grace and extend grace to each other. Um, and that's really important too, because we can get wrapped up in, in fighting too much instead of just saying we have to reduce emissions now. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at with that. I would just add something that's been really powerful for me. I was very involved in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, in which not because of a uh, category four hurricane, but because of human failures. Uh, New Orleans went 80% underwater and a lot of people died. What was so amazing the next day was that there was bumper to bumper traffic of people trying to get into the city, people with boat trailers. And so for me, the analogy is nobody in what got dubbed the Cajun Navy thought they could rescue everybody, but they thought they might be able to rescue somebody. And that was enough for them. And I feel like we're in a Cajun Navy point. We're in an emergency. We're never going to make the world, you know, of 50 or 500 years ago exist the way it did. But there's something we can rescue. There are things we can save. There are things we can protect. There are continuities ecologically um, and human culture in place that we can protect, you know, or make or otherwise rescue, protect by making um, healthy transitions. Um, I talked to the uh, climate scientist Jacqueline Gill at the outset of Thelma and Me organizing, and she said two really powerful things to me. This is not a pass-fail test, and 1.5 is not a cliff we're going to fall off, because she fears that if we reach 1.5, people will think, oh, it's all over. But like the Cajun Navy, even when the city was 80% underwater, even when people had already died, they knew there was something worth doing. There will always be something worth doing. And that's a framework along with uh, the Lilliputians against Gulliver that we're really committed to. It's not too late. It's it's never too late. And um, I love the idea that that phrase rang in your souls with the bell of truth. And absolutely, I, you know, it, it's so uh, inspiring to hear you say that this is a, a crisis of imagination. That's ultimately what we're facing. And it seems, and this is just a perspective, but I'm interested in your thoughts on it, that perhaps humanity is is beginning to cross a kind of threshold because of climate change being an intrinsically global problem. You know, a ton of CO2 anywhere affects the world everywhere, that we're, we're, we're kind of, we're having to grow, I guess, you know, ethically and emotionally to to face global problems and that's challenging but i guess it's also kind of beautiful in a way do you see an evolution potentially here if we can get through that crisis of imagination i i think we both feel that the climate crisis demands nothing less of us than than that we make a better world 
And again, just like we have the energy solutions, I think we have the imaginative solutions present. As you know, I was talking to Roshi Joan Halifax last night, and we continued after the public part to talk about how present indigenous and Buddhist and other ideas outside of kind of Western capitalism and kind of the fragmentation of the world of isolated individualism. You know, we have those pieces and I've seen those ideas move through even American culture really powerfully over the last 30 years. The fact that indigenous people who are being told that they no longer existed, they were extinct, they were obsolete, are doing so much leadership is a sign that we do have these other visions already giving us so much, already at work, already, you know, these ideas have already taken hold. The seeds have been planted and they're growing. They just, you know, one of the despondent left frameworks I constantly run into is ideal. We're starting from scratch. Somebody should do something. We should start this. I think that work is well underway. It's not dominant culture in an obvious way, but it's a transformation, you know, deep in people's imaginations about interconnectedness, um, thinking in terms of systems rather than isolated objects, responsibility, uh, seventh generation thinking, and so much more. But I should hand it to Thelma, who she lives in one of those communities in Fiji. Yeah, I mean, I think anything that helps people look beyond the individual and look at communities and look at looks at relationality, anything that can get people to that point is is absolutely crucial. Um, we love one of Bill McKibben's quotes that, you know, one of the best things that you can do as an individual in climate change is stop acting like an individual. <laughs> and so we, we need people to realize that that power happens when they come together. And that's something that's really beautiful. And we do want people to realize that their actions have an effect. Um, and so we, we exist in relations with people all over the world. We exist in relation with nature. And, and I think the further we can get people to, to accept that they exist in relationality and they're not just bubbles of individuals, um, you know, change can happen. You know, people's heart is not inherently self-interested. I don't believe in that. People want to have strong communities. So, um, maybe climate can get us on a better path. System change through collective action. Exactly, yeah. And just one more thing, just to bring up something Rebecca and I always come back to is um, often people think about climate action as giving up. Oh, I have to stop driving. I have to mm, give yeah. up this in, in order to create a better world. When actually what could be happening is, is through tackling the climate crisis, we actually create a better world. We create communities that are walkable. We create communities that have healthy, breathable air. We create communities where people know their neighbors. Um, so I think it's important to think, to keep this in mind is like, it, it's not about necessarily things that you give up, but thinking about maybe we can create something actually even more beautiful from this all. Exactly. Telling the climate story, uh, not as renunciation, but as getting a better world, um, feels like an important part of the story, but it requires shifting from capitalism, which is, you know, or kind of consumerism about having lots and lots of stuff to having 
More intangible things, having more confidence in the future, decentralizing power literally with energy production, but also dismantling the fossil fuel tyrannies that rule over us, uh, you know, building more, uh, you know, stronger relationships in many ways, more equality, et cetera. And so it's complex because it's so easy to recognize, you know, having all the good, all the fun toys and uh, lack of rules to recognizing how much better our lives would be if we had hope if, and confidence in the future, if we had these connections, if we had the kind of deep kinds of health that's the health of the system, the health of the planet, the health of our local place, the health of ourselves and our children, and, and uh, you know, the health of many species and ecosystems. Because the climate crisis is a kind of planetary sickness and mm. we want to treat it. And fossil fuel itself has been poisoned for 150 years. Absolutely. Both of you, I'm sure you know that you are speaking from our heart. Uh, you are putting forward in such eloquent terms what we firmly believe in as well. Um, and... So thank you for that. Thank you for the compelling and clarity of your of your message. And what do you say to those who are not yet there? What do you say to those who go like, oh, come on, ladies, you know, stop being such Pollyannas. Stop colluding with the greenwashers. Are you just, you know, hiding the fact that everybody is talking the right thing, but not doing the right thing. We actually have to get much more under the hood about this. You, you, I'm sure you have heard those arguments. How do you embrace those arguments? Let me see. I, I feel like the worst thing we face isn't bitterness or grief or despair. The worst thing we, fare is, we face is indifference. Martin Luther King constantly talked about maladjusted, which is a very pop, was a very popular psychology term in his day. You know, women were supposed to be well adjusted to patriarchy. Black people were supposed to be well adjusted to a racist apartheid society. And he said, being maladjusted is in a way, a kind of idealism, a refusal to accept something that should be unacceptable. So I feel like those are people we can talk to. Indifference is the worst thing. But I have also found over the years that people often think that cynicism is realism, but cynicism can be naive. It can be uninformed. And hope can actually be sophisticated, informed, and deeply engaged. And it requires a sense of risk that's also personal and emotional, as well as taking a chance that maybe we can win. Maybe things will turn out if we give it all our our efforts. So I think, you know, we're good with those people. We can send them to us. This is what we're here for. That's great. That's great. Well, um, Thelma and Rebecca, thank you so much. This has been so, uh, so delightful. So, ladies, um, we we could go on uh, forever uh, talking to you and listening to you, especially listening to you, because uh, you you sing from the bottom of our heart. So, thank you very much for that. Sadly, we do have to come to a close, and we have a typical closing that we're not going to use today. We would like to ask you a different question: What out there? 
or in here, either way or both, convinces you that it truly is not too late. Mm. Did you want to go, Thelma, or...? I think I think of my friends in the Marshall Islands. Um, I have a lot of friends in the Marshall Islands and in other atoll nations across the Pacific, and they are relentless. They are not giving up. They have so much at stake, and they keep on fighting, um, and they keep on also spreading the world with also joy and humor and 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 laughter and culture and. Um, it, it's not too late because, you know, for me, when I struggle with hope, I think of something that the activist Ludi Nachpil told me. She's in the Philippines, an amazing Filipino leader. And I asked her what brings her hope. And she said that sometimes she struggles with hope, but, you know, what other choice is there but to fight? Um, and so, on the days where it's hard, where days where the impacts and the weight of it all is hard, sometimes I just have to keep on putting one foot forward and just keeping on going because there is no other choice but to fight. Hmm. I would just add that the science tells us it's not too late. This is the decade of decision. It's really important, urgent more important than anything, to make the best choices and not let the worst choices, the choices the fossil fuel powers want uh, to make. And, you know, and you talk to the people who are most informed and they literally say that it's urgent, we're running out of time, it's an emergency, but an emergency means things are still happening, not that it's over. And so it is... According to them, not too late. And so we're here to just try and bring people to strengthen the best possibilities and um, help help choose them, help shift what happens. Wow. Well, thank you to both of you. Thank you for all the, the work and the thought and the true humble prayer that has gone into your into your lives. Thank you for this new project. It's been delightful to have you here and let us continue to be firm in the fact, not the belief, but the fact that it is not too late. That was Outrage and Optimism. For more episodes on why we still have the power to change things, follow the podcast wherever you're listening to this.